Let's pray. Lord, this morning before we climb into the Word and uh, continue in worship with the truth, Lord, I want to pray for a a church in our community. I want to pray for Aldersgate Church. I want to pray for their new pastor, uh, Rick Prettyman. And uh, I want to pray for him him and his wife, Lord. I want to pray for their marriage. I pray that his primary ministry is to his wife and shepherding his family. And that as he reads and as he studies, that he sees that word transforming him first and then his family and then his people. Lord, I pray that uh, you will give him wisdom in how he shepherds this people, a new experience for him at Aldersgate. Lord, I pray that you'll give him uh, an insight into the heart of the people as to where they are on the journey of faith. And Lord, that with the instrument of the, the Word and the Holy Spirit working through the Word, that you will continue to move the Aldersgate people into a worshiping, uh, truth-embracing, gospel-proclaiming people. Lord, we pray that we will be true partners and brothers and sisters with this church, Lord, that you'll guard us, that you'll guard them, that you'll guard every Christian church in this community from ever having a spirit of competition. Lord, I ask your forgiveness on behalf of all of us for those times that we do that. Lord, we pray pray for great things for this church. We pray that they'll have problems seating the people that are coming and dining and walking the journey of faith together. Lord, this morning for this this church, I pray in these next few minutes that uh, you'll diminish me and I'll be really small. I pray that uh, as an instrument that I'll be out of the way and that I'll be a mouthpiece of truth into a new context that all of us have experienced this week. Lord, I pray that as the people of God that we'll gather and that we'll be looking for the truth, that we won't be just here getting our church on, but we'll be a genuine, authentic people there will be men of sincerity, women of sincerity, families of sincerity that are not just put on a show, but that are serious about understanding what your direction is for our lives. They're serious about understanding our world surrounding us. They're serious about living for the city to come and about placing our faith in the right things. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that those things will be realized. I pray that rich, robust, true, salty, aromatic seed will fall on receptive, cultivated hearts that are not distracted, but that are receiving it and that will bear fruit. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you can turn to the book of Romans, chapter 13. As you turn in there, I'll explain to you why we're going there. I'm actually, I've been preparing these last few months for our, bless you. (laughs) Annie, Annie, are you okay? (laughs) Someone alert EMS. Nothing like sneezing and getting really embarrassed by your pastor in the middle of a sermon. (laughs) I've been preparing for John chapter 14. We've been in John for the last few years, and uh, been, I personally have been 
almost loathing and yet exciting John 14 because it's kind of this sea of red, just very difficult, challenging preaching chapter. Um, but I've gotten to the point where I'm excited about it, and I was ready to stand and deliver chapter 14, verse 1 today. And the Lord took me a different direction. Let me share with you the passage. You don't need to turn there. I want you to stay in Romans chapter 13 because that's where we're going in a moment. But here's what happened. I want to kind of share the story with you. I'm studying this passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I'm just trying to kind of immerse myself in the trouble that we experience as citizens, as believers. And one of the things that I considered this week is I considered our new context as of this last Tuesday. I had a message prepared for this Sunday, and I will share that message next week. But I felt it timely to address the people of God in response to this week's election. In five years here, I've never had a sermon that's been political, and I don't aim to begin today. This is not a political sermon. This will be a, hopefully, a truth-exposing, word-exposing sermon into our new context because we all have a new one as of this week. I know enough of you to know that the results from Tuesday's election probably left some of you, maybe many of you, quite troubled. And I'm speaking nationally and locally because there were changes. There will be changes here locally as well. But knowing also enough of the people that gather and worship here, I suspect that some of you might be maybe secretly, maybe even openly delighted. So I want to speak to both extremes and everything in between. Whether you're troubled or delighted, I want to speak some truth into our new context. So Romans chapter 13 is the first place we'll go. I'll give you a page number. We're going to look at a few passages this morning. Uh, but I, and I'll give you page numbers as we go that, are, that reckon with the page numbers of the, the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you, or if you have an English Standard Version. Okay, I want to help you get there. I want you to see it. To see that I'm not making stuff up. Okay, the first thing is Romans chapter 13. I'm going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 13. This is on page 948 of your pew Bible. What I'm going to do this morning, I'll give you kind of a map. We're going to look at four things that the people of God should understand in response to our new context. Two of them come from Romans chapter 13. So we'll spend the first few minutes here in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
first thing I want to share with God's people this morning is I want to speak these words into this new context that President Barack Obama, and that's how I will refer to him from now on since Tuesday, President Barack Obama is there by appointment. A few things I want to draw, here, draw out here just right in front of you. We just read it, but I want you to see it. In verse 1 it says, There is no authority except from God, and that would include President Barack Obama. I want to also point out that those that exist, those authorities have been instituted by God. Verse 4, for he, just insert President Barack Obama or any other person that you may have may be troubled about or you may be excited about as a result of this election. Fit them into that passage. For he is God's servant. Later in verse 4, for he is the servant of God. Verse 6, for the authorities are ministers of God. The thing that I want to speak into the hearts of God's people this morning is that parties don't elect. It may look like it. Elections don't elect. It may look like it. Those are the means by which God appoints. God's people are going to look at this election through the lens of our Bibles and we're going to understand that God appoints. There's no authority except from God. And that would be true whether Senator McCain was in office or whether our newly elected president is in office. Barack Obama. President Barack Obama. A sovereign God appoints. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Don't turn there. I just want to share a quick passage with you. Daniel, he was, he, he was given a situation where he needed to, to interpret a dream. And there were severe consequences if he didn't interpret that dream. So Daniel is going to interpret a dream of a pagan king. And, da- and Daniel gets the word. He shares it with his buddies, which is a great picture of community. He shares it with his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with their Hebrew names. He says, hey, guys, here's our situation. God gives him an understanding, and here's how he responds in worship, Godward, before he even tells the king what the interpretation was. He, he says these words. He says, mm, God removes king. He doesn't, he doesn't say, mm, I say it. <laughs> he says, God removes kings and sets up kings. God removes kings and sets up kings. I love that perspective. That ought to be the perspective of the people of God. One of the things that I enjoyed this week is looking at how people responded, and even in the week before the election, how people were, God's people and teachers that I respect were speaking into this context. John Piper had a little commentary on the, on the election. I believe this was before the election, and he titled it, Vote As If You're Not Voting. It's a great title. Vote means you're part of the process. It means that you're not a fatalist that's just going to sit at home and say, whatever, man, I don't care. God's going to do what he's going to do. You recognize you're part of the process. You're part of the means. You're an instrument. But when you go cast that vote, go with the peace of mind knowing that God's will is going to be done. A sovereign God is not going to be snoozing on Tuesday any more than he would be snoozing on Wednesday. God was on his throne on Tuesday, and he's on his throne Wednesday, he's on his throne today. So vote as if you're not voting. Because we can trust and know that President Barack Obama is there by appointment. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to go to is also in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. So I'm going to read it again. It's one of the best tools to good Bible study is reading it again. Let's go there again. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The thing I want to acquaint y'all with this morning, a second point is that we are to obey our appointed authorities. First of all, we know that God appoints them. And second of all, we know from this word is that we are to obey our appointed authorities. Authority, something you need to know about Paul and his context and the context of those who are receiving this letter is that they weren't living in utopia. And Paul wasn't writing in, in regards to the best, just imagine the best president that you've ever imagined. That's not who was in office. He's talking about the Roman Empire. The context that he's speaking from and speaking into is so critical to, to, to understanding this passage because we can find a way out. We can find a way out of not obeying by saying, yeah, but he's not worth obeying. And I'm not making any presumptions about speaking about anybody. Yeah, I'm not going to obey them because that authority is not worth obeying. Wives, you can say that about your husbands. Families, you can say that about your church leadership. We can do that to anybody. And we can find a way out of God's design that says, obey your authority. The context for obedience in this passage is it's written by a guy in and out of jail, stoned, Beaten, often without food, for doing what? For being a rabble-rouser? No, for starting churches and for preaching Christ. And oftentimes, that abuse is at the hands of the Roman Empire. Beaten, stoned, imprisoned by the very authorities he's telling Roman believers to obey. He's not speaking into utopia. That's not hard. Obey your authorities there. He's speaking into a very difficult context. And he's telling them to obey their authorities. Likely believers in the Roman Empire, that they faced serious trouble. Whenever they became a Christian, they likely lost their job. They lost their family. In many cases, they lost their life. They were raped. They were raided. They went to severe poverty. Most of Paul's ministry, uh, while, while he's preaching Christ and planting churches, he's taking up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. Why did the believers in Jerusalem need a, need a collection? Because they were under poorhouse because they were believing. And he's speaking into that context saying, obey your authorities. Paul wasn't the only one to say this. Jesus said this. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
Even the one in whom all things are held together, the one that was the agent of creation that scooped the oceans and piloted the mountains, says, obey your authorities. He acknowledges a responsibility to our authorities. And you know what? He modeled how far that must go. He modeled it as he stood before Pilate like a sheep before shears and said, Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. He recognizes where Pilate's authority comes from, and then he follows through by obeying and submitting even unto death. I'll give you some examples, though, where there are boundaries to obedience. It may sound like this obedience is extreme and it should go even unto death, and I hope you're getting that, that our obedience is, man, it's violently peaceful. <laughs> it's aggressively uh, complete that we obey, yet there are boundaries to obedience. I feel obligated to speak that into this context. I'm making no assumptions about what's in store in the next four years. So no one go there. <laughs> I'm going to kill that before it even takes, has an opportunity to take root. I'm making no assumptions about what's in store in the next four or the next 40. But I know that oftentimes God prepares us for things that are happening well down the road. And we may not even realize we're being prepared for it. So let me speak into this context of obeying your authorities and show you the, the caveats. Turn to Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. It'll be on page 45 of your pew Bible. Exodus chapter 1, actually I'm going to begin in verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt, that would be the Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, this is while the nation of Israel is in captivity or in bondage in Israel or in uh, Egypt. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these guys were pretty prolific. Apparently they, they were multiplying quickly, the Israelites. And the Pharaoh's nervous about it. Like, man, these are a bunch of the Israelites now. Where do they all come from? So he says, he gives a charge to the midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on that birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But, thank goodness there's a but there. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Moses was a product of that disobedience. They were disobedient to their authorities. Let me give you the next example. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. It's on page 739 of your pew Bible or your ESV. <clears throat> Daniel has a couple of examples of this, caveats and boundaries to obedience. I'm just going to read kind of a couple little snippets. You can look at, look, look at them with me if you'd like. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he gave this charge down in verse 5. It's sort of like musical chairs. When you hear the music playing, you're supposed to do something, dance, move, something. And in this case, when the music plays, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music... 
You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It's in that context that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to that edict with respectful disobedience. Sorry, sir, we can't do that. And you may know the rest of the story. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, and God protected them. Turn over to Daniel chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, Darius, or it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one. Look down at verse 4. The presidents, these guys, they, the presidents and satraps didn't like Daniel. So they conspired. It said the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. So then they come to King Darius later, and they really kissing his behind. Oh, King Darius, live forever, in verse 6. And then in verse 7, they say, You know, the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Let's look at what Daniel did in verse 10. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his, knee, on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, not before Darius, as he had done previously. He gave thanks to his God before his God as he had done previously. Daniel's a great picture of there are bounds to obedience. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 18, the apostles are called before the Sanhedrin. It's on page 912 of your pew Bible. It says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And listen to what Peter and John say. And Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In the next chapter on the opposite page, in verse 27, they're brought before the council again. And it says, And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There are boundaries to obedience. When obeying man means disobeying God, then there's time for civil, peaceful, respectful, gentle disobedience with the windows open as we've always done. That should be the character of our disobedience if there are grounds for disobedience. I want to speak to a couple of issues. The issues really have nothing to do with anything. They're not pet issues. They're just examples of where I want you to see where obedience has limits. When I was in the Marine Corps, we had these things called tactical decision games. Tactical decision games are where a bunch of lieutenants are sitting around this big sand table, and it's got these little hills and little 
tanks and troops and stuff set up all over it and you're the good guy and the bad guy you have to make decisions about what you're going to do and like say they set up an ambush and how are you going to respond to that and and the key phrase for a tactical decision game that you hear over and over again is what now lieutenant what they're doing with that is they're conditioning these marine leaders to make decisions quickly and to make good decisions without the cost of marine lives the reason i bring that up is because i've got a couple of tdgs that are going on for me right now tactical decision games but they're not games one has to do and i'm thinking in advance about something that could happen i'm not presuming anything but i'm thinking about what could happen and here's a tdg that's on our radar right now evan came down my oldest came down friday friday it may have been thursday night she said i can't sleep or two no this would have been tuesday night i think she got the results you know we had a pretty good sense of where the election was going it may have been Wednesday. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Why am I focused on that? It doesn't matter. She came downstairs, and she said, I can't sleep. And I said, why, Evan? She said, I, what if President Obama makes it to where we can't do homeschooling anymore? And she was really fretting about this. Now, I'm going to speak to that. Before I speak anything about homeschooling, I want to just disarm something. <laughs> Those of you who are homeschooling who have been saying, man, finally he's going to plug homeschooling. I thought it's not a plug for homeschooling. There's some great parents with awesome Christ-adoring kids and families who are taking their kids to public school or to GCS or wherever. This is not about homeschooling. This is only our TDG. I'm sharing with you a personal TDG and where we're having to make some decisions ahead of time. Where I'm considering the fact that President Obama is a strong teachers' union supporter and the teachers' union opposes homeschooling. I'm just considering that. I don't see a conspiracy on the horizon. But I'm thinking in advance, before we crest that hill, what could be on the other side of that hill? And I'm thinking, what now, Lieutenant? How are you going to handle that? What now, Daddy and Mommy? What now, believer? I also found that President Obama is a supporter of the UN Convention for the Rights of the Child. The UN Convention of the Rights of a Child places the rights of a child above the rights of the parent who's making decisions on behalf of the child. So the impact that that could have on homeschooling is that before a family could homeschool, you've got to ask little Johnny. Johnny, do you want to go to homeschool? And it depends on what Johnny has to say. If Johnny says yes, then okay, we're off. If he says no, then Johnny's in charge. I'm just taking those things into consideration. I'm thinking about them. I'm wondering what's over the hill. And I'm thinking, what if our government says parents must be accredited before they can teach at home? The response for the Christian who has decided to homeschool, who believes that obedience for their family, for their family, <laughs> is to homeschool, would be, we just go get accredited. <laughs> we don't have to go burn anything down. <laughs> we just go get accredited. Now, if it went beyond that, and they said, well, the government says that we can't teach at home, period, then that's the time where we determine if it's God's will for us to continue. If it's obedience for our family, and again, emphasis on our family, making no suppositions about any other families, but for our family to obey Deuteronomy chapter 6, then that's the place where we have to decide, okay, what now, Lieutenant? And that may be grounds for us to have a respectful civil disobedience another issue just this might be near and dear we live in the south might be the issue of gun control i like to hunt 
I could even, you might find me actually squirrel hunting periodically. <laughs> Want to kill a couple squirrels every now and then. I, I enjoy hunting. I love, some of my gr- greatest memories are hunting with my dad or hunting with my children. I love being outdoors and doing that. But what if guns are outlawed and we have to turn ours in? What now, Lieutenant? Same criteria, different issue. While I enjoy hunting, I cannot find rationale for Godward disobedience in this case, or God obedience, authority disobedience. I don't see it in Deuteronomy 6, the right to bear arms. I don't see it anywhere in my Bible. (laughs) I would love to see it, but it's not there. So I'm okay with that. And if it came to that, and again, I'm making no suppositions about the next four years. Some of you might be just, he thinks this guy is falling. No, I'm just imagining. I'm wondering what now, Lieutenant, if you imagine what's over the hill. I would need to give up our arms. A couple of quotes from a guy named John Stott, a guy that I have a lot of respect for. He's a commentator and a, and a pastor. He said that we are, Christians are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. That's where obedience to authorities leaves off and obedience to God continues. He also said, if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. And the character of that civil disobedience should be with gentleness and with respect and with faithfulness and with love. Now, Again, making no presuppositions or presumptions about the next four years. I just wanted, as I'm communicating obedience, violent, now that's probably not a good word, aggressive obedience to whoever our authorities are, that there are boundaries. But I want you to know that these stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and these apostles, and these Hebrew midwives, these are not stories about defiance. Go, defiant Christians. They're stories about violent obedience to God. That should be the character of the people of God. And in this case, God has said, obey your authorities because I put them there. So the character and tone of the next four years for the people of God should be obedience. Turn back to Romans chapter 13. Let me show you. There's such a great picture of what this should sound like and what this should look like. It's a verse I just read twice, but you may not have paid attention to it in this, in this way, of what the character and tone of our obedience should be. Page 948. Romans chapter 13, verse 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Respect and honor needs to be the character of our obedience. It might be a right as an American to badmouth our president or our mayor or our governor, but for the Christian, it's not right. It's right there in black and white. Man, I know you have opportunities to do it in the workspaces, in your cubicles, in your warehouses, in your work trucks, and wherever you work, in your neighborhoods, in your backyards, your front yards, over the coffee table. We have opportunities to run them down. But the people of God have a sweet opportunity to have an honorable, respectful obedience 
to our new president or new mayor or whoever it might be. I know that we didn't elect a mayor, but whoever might be in office because we recognize who put them there. Third thing to share with you. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. The first thing was that President Barack Obama is there by appointment. All of our authorities are there by appointment. We are to obey our appointed authorities is the second thing. The third thing is that we are to pray for kings and those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then, Paul's writing to a pastor who's planting churches in the Roman Empire, who's planting churches in a context where people are also being raided, raped, killed, murdered, losing jobs, whatever, for, for, for their faith. And he's writing to this young pastor. He's saying, hey, Tim, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He says, pray for kings and all those in authority. Let's pray for each other. But we pray for our authorities, even if we may not personally identify with them, even if they may not be in our personal party affiliation. Pray for kings and all those in authority. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. If that's true, if the king's heart or the president's heart or the governor or mayor's heart or daddy's heart is in the hand of God and he turns it wherever he wishes, then what should our emphasis be and our focus be if we see something that just doesn't reconcile with us? It should be prayer. We're going to have civil disobedience or civil protest and we're not going to pray about it? If we believe that The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And if we're charged here by Paul and Timothy to pray for kings and those in authority, the character of the people of God will be a prayerful prayerful character. We're praying for him. A couple of things to pray about in these next four years, specific things. Here's one. We need to pray about the Freedom of Choice Act. One of the first things that President Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, our president, has said that he's going to do when he gets into office is he's going to sign the Freedom of Choice Act. Since Roe versus Wade, those who have affection and love for the unborn have made great strides to make it more and more difficult to abort babies. The Freedom of Choice Act will take much, if not all, of that away and make it really, really easy to get abortions. That's something the people of God ought to be praying about. Whether... You voted for him or not. It's moot. He's our president. And we need to pray for kings and those in authority and beg the Lord, Lord, please turn his heart on this. Please arrest him with the value of the unborn. The second thing that we need to be praying about is the Defense of Marriage Act. This was an act that was passed in 1996. Basically what happened is states began to say, some of the states, Hawaii I think was the first state, said, hey, we're going to recognize homosexual marriage. And other states started kind of talking about it, and the government said, we need to make a decision on this. And the government recognized the impact if one state recognizes homosexual marriage and another state doesn't, that when that homosexual couple moves to another state, they move to Texas from Hawaii, and Texas says, you're not married? 
the government needed to make a decision on that and make a statement about where we were going to stand as a country. So what they said is, we're defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. That may seem like a small deal, but that's a huge deal. That's something to be praying about. That's something to be bringing before the Lord because the definition of family is a biblical definition. And when family becomes a man and a man or a woman and a man, it could potentially become, this could seem ludicrous, a man and his daughter or a man and a man and a woman or a man and his pet. Now that may seem extreme, but I'm telling you, it's a slippery slope. This is a great source for figuring out the definition of marriage. And that's something we should be praying about, begging for as Lord Please turn the heart of those who seek to repeal. He wants to repeal this act from 1996. Please guard marriage. And why should we be vigilant about that? Because of what marriage represents. It's what I shared with you a couple weeks ago. If marriage is a picture of a relationship between Christ and the church, then the people, the church, ought to be pretty lovingly vigilant about saying, don't do that to marriage. Marriage is a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So let's guard it. And not go burn stuff down, but lovingly present the truth and beg for the heart of the king or those in authority. The fourth thing I want to share with you this morning, the first was President Obama is there by appointment. We are to obey our appointed authorities. The third thing was to pray for kings and those in authority. The fourth thing, and this is the thing that I'm most passionate about, the thing that I've been most excited to share this morning, is that if God appoints our authorities and, our, and their hearts are like water in His hands, then Christians should know not to put our faith in that authority. What that might look like when you put your faith in that authority is if you're really celebrating like, salvation has come to our country. Now, I don't want to minimize those who may be truly excited about, man, I am excited there's an African-American in office. I was trying to get into the mind of an African-American and understand that. And where I went was to think the first time that Christy and I sat together and heard from another couple that we loved and adored that they had had a fight. But yet they had a beautiful marriage. And we were like, oh, maybe we're not a freak. You've had a fight? There's hope for us. I'm imagining a young African-American man seeing a man in office as an African-American going, dude, there's hope. We ought to celebrate that for the African-American community and our brothers and sisters that are African-American among us. That's something to be excited about. But to celebrate him as salvation coming to this world, to this country, is too much. And also to go into severe mourning is too much too because you're putting faith in the office. Let me show you what celebrating too much looks like. A guy named Charles Rangel, he's a congressman from New York, gave a speech. I saw the video of this on on a little clip that someone sent to me. And I'm just quoting exactly what he said. He said, electing Barack is going to change your lives. This isn't about Barack Obama. You could put McCain in there. It should be in the front, what you're about to hear. Electing Barack is going to change your lives, our community lives. And believe me, it's going to change the attitude of the entire world. There may be some truth to that. Then he goes on to say, who's our hero? Barack Obama. Who's going to lead us out of poverty? And everybody's cheering, Barack Obama. 
Who's going to save the United States of America? Ooh, I don't like that language. Barack Obama. And here's where it gets even worse. Who's going to save the entire world? Wow. Barack Obama. And then he says, who do we love? Barack Obama. And he ends his speech with the next two words. God bless. What an irony. Man, I thought the fact that the guy took another breath, the fact that the living God let him take another breath was an incredible grace and mercy. I'm going to tell you what, that's too much faith in someone. That's too much faith in someone. So if you're celebrating, man, that's fine. But don't celebrate like that. He's not our Savior. Nobody is. Insert anybody's name in there, and don't you dare go there and put your faith, too much faith in any man. The other extreme would be to disown America and say, I'm moving. <laughs> and go into a state of depression over the election results. That's too much faith in the office. It's walking by sight is what it is. And the people of God don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. John 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples in his final hours before he goes to the cross, before he stands before that Pontius Pilate. He says these words, he said, The world, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, he didn't say you will have tribulation if it's a democratic response, a democratic victory, or a democrat victory, and you won't if it's a republican victory. You will have tribulation, period. So whether it's McCain or President Obama or Ron Paul or Kinky Friedman, <laughs> I know he's not running for president, I just like saying his name. Whether it's any of those guys, we're going to have trouble in this world, this side of glory. Until our Lord reigns here on earth for a millennium, it doesn't matter who's in office. We will experience trouble. No one but Christ can relieve our real trouble. Whatever party controls the House, whatever party controls the Senate, there will always be trouble but the people of God are to hope and trust in God not in man not in means I was thinking about this what if taxes go up what if my wealth I use that term loosely <laughs> what if my wealth is spread to Joe the plumber it's a good thing I'm not living for this city it's a good thing that Wealth isn't mine, people of God. What if we have to share it with everybody? What if the government says, you're going to do it? What a great opportunity for the people of God to shine and show a lost world where our hope is. Right? Oh, man, that's all right. I'm not living for this city. My riches are in heaven. I'm living for the city to come. What if things get real bad for us? It's a good thing our citizenship is somewhere else. It's a good thing the people of God just recognize how temporary all this is. What I'd hope to do this morning is to point those who are in mourning and feel the skies falling. And those who are celebrating thinking that salvation has come to the world. I want to bring both of those extremes back to the center and remind the people of God that we're living for the city of God. 
We're citizens of an invisible kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about these things that we get so worked up about. The kingdom of God is about the rule of God in the hearts of men. That's our burden. That's where our focus is. I'm going to end with these words from Jesus to Pilate. In the hours, moments, in fact, before he's nailed to a cross. He told Pilate, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom is not of this world, then our kingdom is not of this world. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. That's our kingdom. Let's pray for kings and those in authority. Lord, in these next few minutes, the people of God want to lift up our new president. Lord, we want to thank you that you were on your throne, that you weren't snoozing on Tuesday, that you weren't snoozing a few years ago on September the 11th, that you weren't snoozing on July the 4th, 1776. You were on your throne then, you're on your throne now, and you will forever be on your throne. Involved, all-knowing, all-engaging. Lord, we recognize and confess and even enjoy that you have appointed our authorities. And I pray that the people of God, I pray this, that you will work this, wrought this in us, that we will be respectful and honorable, that we will obey up until the point where obedience to authorities leave off obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you'll find us leaning forward in honorable obedience and that our workmates and our friends and our family who may think it's an American way to badmouth our, our authorities, that they'll see a unique people who may be in the same breath speaking disagreement but doing it honorably and respectfully. Lord, I pray that in the, if in the next four years or in the next 40 years, that if it comes a point in time where the people of God have to make some decisions about what about obeying authorities or obeying you, that we will be Daniels, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that we will be the apostles making that decision to obey you whatever the cost. That if we're being equipped for some decision, something that will happen in the future, that you will find us ready and attentive. And that it will find purchase in our hearts. Lord, some specifics we want to pray this morning as a people of God. We want to pray for this Freedom of Choice Act. Lord, I... We beg you to turn the heart of the authority in this case. Lord, we beg you to protect the lives of the unborn. Lord, we pray that we'll not lose ground that's been gained. And at the same time, we recognize that those are means and we put our faith and our trust in you that you're on your throne and you're not snoozing. We recognize and confess that the heart of the king is in your hands. We beg for you to turn that. Lord, also the Defense of Marriage Act, we pray. We don't put our faith in this Defense of Marriage Act, but we recognize what it represents and what it defines, and we are passionate about guarding that, Lord. Show us how to do that with honor and respect and obedience. Lord, we pray for the heart of the authority. We pray the heart for the heart of our new president that it will turn in definition of what marriage is that you will work in his heart and his life where he'll see what marriage is and how you've designed marriage to be. We beg for that specifically. 
Lord, all the while we trust to know that you are on your throne, that you know all things, that your ways are perfect, and that your will will be done. Thank you so much for giving us a response or an opportunity to respond faithfully and honorably in these next few years. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship in song.